0: Well it's a real pleasure to be here. I want to thank uh, Patrick and the elders for a very kind welcome and uh, the congregation for the many uh, kind and encouraging conversations I've had this weekend. It's been a real pleasure. I have to dash off at the end I'm afraid my plane leaves uh, uh, fairly early this afternoon so I will be disappearing as soon as I've uh, finished preaching this morning but I do want to express my appreciation to the congregation for your hospitality. I wonder if you turn with me to the first book of Kings and I want to uh, Read 1st Book of Kings, chapter 17, verses 1 to 24. It's a famous moment in, uh, in the book when the prophet Elijah bursts onto the scene. Hear the word of the Lord. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, There shall be neither dew nor rain these years, except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zaraphath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty, until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? And he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again. And he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now now I know that you are a man of God that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Let us pray. O Lord God, we thank you that though you are a God who dwells in unapproachable light, though you are transcendent and perfect and holy and infinite, though our minds cannot grasp you, yet you have in your condescension revealed yourself to us, in your work of creation, in your works of providence, in the words of your scripture and supremely, in the incarnation of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray now that your Holy Spirit might take the words of your Scripture, your word as it proclaimed, and seal it upon our hearts, that we might leave this place, knowing that we have met once again with the living God. Leave this place, Lord, knowing that we have met once again with the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the author and the finisher of our salvation. Knowing, O God, that we have been fed and strengthened to witness for you in this world in the week that lies before us. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It's probably true that the Old Testament contains some of the most familiar stories in the Bible. When my two boys were small, uh, on occasion at family worship, we would ask them, uh, what would you like to read? We would give them the choice. And typically, if, uh, if they wanted the whole thing to be over fairly quickly, they'd say Psalm 23, because they knew it was short. If they wanted a good story, we would go to the book of Judges and the story of Eglon, the immensely fat man who is assassinated by Ehud. It has all of the elements uh, that a young uh, boy would want in a story. It has violence, a secret plan, a ridiculously fat individual, and a terrible assassination in the laboratory. Uh, the stories are familiar to us. We know the stories. Those of us who are Christians know the stories very well, but often we struggle to know exactly what to do with them today. They're great stories, but what is their significance for Philadelphia at the beginning of the 21st century, or for Omaha, Nebraska at the beginning of the 21st century? Well, what I want to suggest today is that the Old Testament reveals to us the character and the power of God in ways that find their fulfillment, their culmination, in the Lord Jesus Christ and are therefore very significant for us today as the church. The New Testament talks about the church as the body of Christ and therefore as the Old Testament culminates in Christ. So learning about Christ teaches us by analogy much about the church and the way the church should live today. And the story before us I think is a great example that reveals to us much about the Lord and points Clearly, towards the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is to come. So a little bit of background, of course. The story takes place at a specific point in the history of Israel. Uh, After King David, uh, Solomon, his son, becomes king. And though Solomon starts well, Solomon ends his reign marrying women, taking wives from all of the nations around, and introducing uh, idolatry into the nation of Israel. And as a result of this, the Lord uh, vows to, to take the kingdom away from Solomon's descendants, to divide the kingdom after the death of Solomon. And when Solomon dies, he's succeeded by his son, Rehoboam. And Rehoboam uh, does not take the advice of his wise counselors, but treats the people of Israel with contempt. And so there rises a man, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who leads ten of the tribes of Israel into rebellion against Judah. And the kingdom is divided, politically divided, and geographically divided. Jeroboam, though, has a problem. Jeroboam's territory does not include the city of Jerusalem. And Jews are required to go to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. And Jeroboam knows that a a nation that has a divided geographical loyalty will ultimately prove problematic to rule. If his people are always looking over the border to Jerusalem, sooner or later the idea of reunification will surface in their thinking. And Jeroboam or his descendants will find their own power base, their own kingdom taken away from them. So Jeroboam comes up with a brilliant, if somewhat wicked, idea. And what he does is he has golden calves made and set up at the cities of Bethel and Dan. And he tells the people of Israel, you don't need to go to Jerusalem to worship the God that brought you up out of Egypt. The God that brought you up out of Egypt is here. You can find him represented in the golden calves. And Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, becomes uh, literally a kind of proverbial king in Israel. Because as the, as the writer of the book of Kings uh, recounts the history of Israel, and as he comes to a new king... He'll use a particular formula. He'll give you certain details about the king. He'll tell you who his father was. He'll tell you how long he reigned. But he will also typically tell you that he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he taught Israel to sin. And what he means by that is this king, the kings who succeeded Jeroboam, none of them had the backbone. None of them had the spine to tear down the images at Bethel and Dan and tell the people to go and worship in Jerusalem. So he becomes the archetypal sinful king by which all future kings are judged until we come to 1 Kings 16. In 1 Kings 16, we see the rise of Ahab, who is king at the point where Elijah arrives on the scene in 1 Kings 17. And Ahab is described in different terms. Ahab is described as, as if it were a little thing for him to commit the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. He added this to them, that he married Jezebel, princess of the Sidonians, and taught Israel to worship the Baals and the Ashtaroth. You see the point. Ahab is the king who, well, at the the height of sinful pride for previous kings, the worship in line with that laid out by Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, That's a little thing for Ahab. Ahab represents a distinct escalation in the sin of Israel. Ahab is not simply teaching, we might say, the Israelites to worship the true God in the wrong way. Ahab is introducing the worship of foreign gods into the territory of Israel. And it's at this point that the Lord seems to say, enough is enough. It's at this point that the Lord decides it is time to engage Israel in what is effectively a cosmic battle relative to who rules Israel, to whom should their worship be given. And what we have in 1 Kings 17 is is the start of a battle that will only really find its dramatic culmination in the arrival of Jehu, son of Nimshi. Some years in the future we see here the beginning, the opening salvos, in a battle that will span the book of first, books of first and second kings. So with all that background, this is where we come to First Kings 17. The man from Tishbe, Elijah, emerges as if from nowhere and confronts Ahab. He declares that there will be no rain. The Lord then sends him off to a brook and he is uh, watered. He receives his water from the brook. And he's fed by ravens that the Lord provides. And as the drought begins to bite, presumably the water table in the area starts to drop and the brook dries up. probably seen that phenomenon yourselves. I live right by a creek and in a hot summer, the creek dries up. It can flood in the winter, but in the summer it'll dry up. The water table drops, the water dries up. That's what Elijah is experiencing here. And then the Lord instructs him to go to Zarephath to the house of a widow and her son. It's outside the promised land, and that'll be significant in a few minutes' time. We'll reflect on the significance of that. But Zarephath is in Sidon. Sidon is in the heart of the territory of Phoenicia. He's no longer in the promised land. He's been taken out of the promised land and sent to a foreign land. But as we learn from the narrative, this foreign land too is subject to the same drought that is afflicting the people of Israel. The widow, Elijah discovers, is down to her last morsels of food and so he works a great miracle for her in which the flour and oil that she has will last until the Lord sends rain. But then while Elijah is staying with her, the child becomes ill and dies and she calls out to the prophet. She rebukes, berates the prophet over the death of this child and the child then performs uh, the, the prophet then performs this weird ritual, this bizarre ritual, that brings the boy back from the dead. A lot of very interesting elements in this story, but what is its relevance for us today? I want to make four points, four basic points this morning. I think this passage teaches us about the power of God in his word, I think this passage teaches us about the power of God in his sovereignty. It teaches us about the power of God in his mercy. And it teaches us about the power of God in the midst of death. And those are the four points I want to explore with you this morning. First of all, the power of God in his word. The most interesting thing we learn about Elijah when he appears on the scene is the thing that we don't learn about it. There's something very unusual about the introduction of Elijah. And the unusual thing is... We don't know who his father was. I've already referred uh, to, to two men this morning, and I've given their, their full sort of title. Referred to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and I've referred to Jehu, the son of Nimshi. Typically in the Old Testament, when we come across an important person, we are told who their father is. Not unique to ancient Israel, if you ever read uh, a Russian novels, one of the problems with Russian novels it takes about a, a hundred pages to work out exactly who is who that 's why often in, in you know, translations of Russian novels, they have those glossaries at the front with all the names listed because characters have several names in russia they 'll have a they 'll have a christian name they 'll have a surname they 'll also have a patronymic a famous book written in the '60s by Alexander. Uh, Solzhenitsyn was a day in the life of Ivan Denisovich. Denisovich is patronymic. so tells you he's the son of Denis. Patronymics locate you to your father. And the reason for that is certain societies, who your ancestors or who your parents were, provide you with authority. I a little taste of this. My wife comes from a, an island off the west coast of Scotland when on the odd occasion we go back, we can afford to go back and visit... Her relatives. I can be walking around town or the village and engage in conversation with somebody. And at some point they'll say to me, well, who are your people? What they mean is, who are you related to here? Because when they work out who you're related to, that provides you with a kind of status within the society, within the village, within the town. In the Old Testament, your status, your authority, rests in a large part on your genealogy. Elijah the Tishbite. We're not told who Elijah's father is. He comes as if out of nowhere on Old Testament terms. We just know the town he comes from, Tishbe in Gilead. And I think the reason is this. Elijah's authority does not derive from who he is. It does not derive from the family he comes from. The writer is making the point that Elijah's authority rests entirely on the fact that he brings the word of the Lord. When Elijah speaks... He speaks with authority because it is the Lord's word that he speaks. As He's a messenger. He has authority because of the person who has commissioned the message. You turn up for work tomorrow morning, perish the thought that this should happen, but you walk, let's say you walk into your office and your secretary is there and says to you, you're fired. And you say to your secretary, that's not how it works. You work for me and and I fire you. And she says, or he says, no, no, I've got a, a note here, an email here from chairman of the board, president of the company, and he says, you're fired. It doesn't matter that it's the secretary bringing the message, you're fired, because she speaks with the authority of the boss. That's what Elijah does here. Elijah's authority is that of an ambassador or a herald. And the fact that he speaks with authority is demonstrated, of course, by the fact that the skies are immediately closed. He has authority only because the word provides him with authority. What's the application of that today? What authority does Pat Abendroth have in in this church? His ultimate authority rests in the fact that he brings the word of God. There are certain things he doesn't have authority to do in terms of your lives he doesn't have authority to tell you where to work where to live his authority is restricted to and powered by the word of God where does the authority of the church lie in this day and generation does it lie in numbers does it lie in attracting the influential movers and shakers from the wider culture whether it's political or entertainment Within her bounds, not at all. The power of the church lies in the Word. The declaration of the Word. And that should be an encouragement to us. I don't know how big Omaha is. It's maybe a million people, you said. How many people here? Maybe 250, 300 people. Uh, Ratchet up a notch. Go to Manhattan. Tim Keller's church. How many people in Tim Keller's church? 4,000 people. That's a big church. Is it? In a city of 10, 15 million people? What is that but a drop in the ocean? Where should this church draw its confidence from? Not from its numbers. It should draw joy when its numbers increase. But make no mistake, the power of this church lies not in its ability to be a mover and shaker, not in its ability to manipulate the levers of power in the wider culture. The authority of this church lies in the fact that it possesses the Word, is possessed by the Word, proclaims the Word, both from the pulpit and in our individual encounters with people. As Elijah doesn't need the authority of his father to speak with authority because he brings the Word, the church doesn't need social status to have power. It simply needs to faithfully proclaim the Word of God. Secondly, notice the power of God in His sovereignty. And I think we see it in two ways in this passage. First of all, we see it in the way that God will clearly give His glory to no other, and will therefore challenge these false gods on their own territory. On their own, what we might say, metaphysical territory. Who is Baal? Who is Baal thought to be? Well, if you look back at carvings and inscriptions re, uh, respecting Baal, Baal was typically uh, represented as holding lightning bolts. He was the god of rain and the god of lightning. Think about that. This is an agrarian society. It's a society built on farms. I'm guessing in Nebraska you can sympathize with that. A lot of farms in the Midwest. Well, in an era before irrigation... What does it mean when the skies are closed, when it doesn't rain? It's a death sentence. It's a death sentence. What is the Lord saying here? He's saying, you know, you're looking to bail for rain, you're looking to bail for life, for sustenance. Well, I'm going to show you who's in charge of the rain. I'm going to close the skies, and you can call out to bail all you want but the skies will not open. I am going to demonstrate to you that I am sovereign over rain. And if you don't get the message, you're going to die. It's a death sentence. Second aspect of the sovereignty is being demonstrated here is geographical. The Lord could have said to Elijah, okay, you're in a tight spot. You're in a tight spot at this point. Water's dried up. There's no food You need to get to Jerusalem, because that's where the temple is, and that's where I'm strongest. You need to get to the temple. It doesn't say that. He says to Elijah, get out of the promised land, go to Baal's territory. Phoenicia was an area where Baal worship is particularly strong in the ancient world. Get out of the promised land, and go to Baal's home ground. It's not the last time the Lord will do this, Uh, Uh, Mount Carmel, where the great showdown takes place between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Mount Carmel is in the heart of Baal worship territory. The Lord gives Baal home field advantage, as you would say, in that particular conflict. The Lord sends Elijah into the heart of Baal's own territory and demonstrates his geographical sovereignty. Baal's territory doesn't belong to Baal. The Lord can send his man there and give him life. And preserve him and work miracles through him. The Lord challenges Baal's sovereignty both in terms of the powers that Baal the powers that are ascribed to Baal, that of Rain, and the territory that is ascribed to Baal, that of Phoenicia. That should be an encouragement to us. It doesn't matter what the outward look of a place is. It doesn't matter if places seem to be very pagan. Pagan gods are no gods. The Lord is sovereign everywhere. We should not get discouraged when we see setbacks all around us. The Lord is sovereign everywhere over all things. Even in the areas where we are tempted to ascribe power to other gods. The Lord is sovereign there. This passage should be an encouragement to us. So the power of God in his word, the power of God in his holiness. Thirdly, the power of God in his mercy. What's interesting about this passage is that the judgment of God, and it's ferocious judgment at this point, it's a death sentence against his own people. The judgment against the nation of Israel does not preclude the Lord's care for individuals. Elijah is cared for in this passage. First of all, at the brook and by the ravens, the Lord is in charge of natural resources, that preserves Elijah from destruction. Then he sent to the widow and her son. And the Lord demonstrates that he looks after Elijah there. Even in the midst of this comprehensive judgment, the Lord is merciful. We often tend to, uh, to think of the Lord's judgment and the Lord's mercy as being so opposed, it's difficult to see how they could operate together at the same time. Here's a great passage that demonstrates that. The Lord's judgment against Israel is simultaneous with his mercy towards Elisha and this widow. And we should notice that this judgment against Israel is God demonstrating his holiness, that he will not give his glory to another and he will bring judgment against those who do give his glory to another. This judgment that arises out of his holiness and his sovereignty does not require that he simultaneously deny the merciful part of his character. The choice of objects of mercy at this point is very interesting and connects directly to how the Old Testament describes the character of God. We often tend to think, if you've studied theology, we often tend to think of God's attributes in somewhat abstract terms. God is holy. God is righteous. God is omnipresent. God is infinite. The Bible typically describes God's attributes in very concrete terms that we can sort of grasp. Very easily. Character of God is described in Deuteronomy 10, verse 17, in this way. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. And he goes on to say, He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. What is this story that we have before us? It's a narrative Of that attribute of God. What do we see in this story before us? We we see the Lord looking out for a widow, an orphan, and a sojourner far from home. Here the Lord, in the very way he fine-tunes the way he deals with Elijah, and this widow and her son, demonstrates, proves exactly what Deuteronomy has said about him. Even though it is at a time of very comprehensive and dramatic judgment. And we might say also that the prophet reflects God's character. In Deuteronomy, you know, when the Lord describes his character, he says to his people, and this is what you need to be like. Because I'm like this, you, my people, should reflect my character. And Israel singly failed to do that. But here we have Elijah showing forth God's character, caring for the widow, and for the fatherless. Even as societies come under God's judgment, even as the church comes under God's judgment, we should remember that God does not deny his own character, that God's promises of grace and mercy still hold secure. It's the case for Elijah and the widow here. How best do we comfort people in a time of comprehensive judgment? Point them towards the great promises, rooted in the character of God. Matthew sixteen eighteen. I tell you, you are Peter on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Romans eight twenty eight, and we know that for those who love God all things work together for good. Not that all things are good, suffering's not good, but it will work for the good. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. and Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The Lord's promises hold good, even in a time of setback and judgment, because the Lord's character does not change, and the Lord's promises are rooted in his unchanging character. Fourthly and finally, then, we've done well, we've done the power of God in his word, the power of God in his sovereignty, the power of God in his mercy. We now come to the power of God in the midst of death. It's weird, isn't it? This ritual's weird. Perish the thought. If I were to get home on a Tuesday night and somebody in my congregation calls me and says, My child has died. You know, I don't mean this in a funny way, but You know, if I were to go to their house and perform this ritual on their child, they'd have every right, I think, to be most distressed with me and possibly call the police. This is the behavior of a lunatic. It's crazy stuff. Lying on the corpse of a child. It's inherently distasteful, if not somewhat sick. It's even weirder by Old Testament standards. It's even weirder by Old Testament standards. Numbers 19. Numbers. I don't know if you use one of those uh, through read through the Bible in a year or two-year programs, but you know if we're honest with ourselves, when you get to the Book of Numbers, doesn't your heart fall a bit? You know, it's a kind of it's a long death march through to to Deuteronomy, and I mean you've only you've just got out of Leviticus. It's it's hard going, and there can be a temptation as Christians to say. It's all about Jewish ceremony. It really doesn't apply to us anymore. It doesn't help me read the Bible or understand Christ any better. Why don't I just cut straight to to, to a gospel, and read a gospel? In actual fact, Book of Numbers is important for understanding this passage here, and important for understanding the work of Christ. Numbers nineteen eleven says this, and you flick over it as, as a bit of weirdness if you if you didn't uh, if you don't know how it connects. Numbers nineteen eleven says, "Whoever touches the dead body of any person." Shall be unclean seven days. Whoever touches a dead body will be unclean, effectively excluded from the people of God for seven whole days. That's pretty brutal. It's pretty brutal. And if you read uh, if you read all the details of that, it's even it's even stronger than that. You know, if if you go into a house and lie down on the bed where a dead body has been laying on that bed recently but you don't know there was a dead body on it, you're still unclean. The uncleanness is that powerful. You're rendered unclean by it. The weirdest thing here is that the prophet goes out of his way to make himself unclean. He takes the child. He lies on top of the child three times. Why does he do that? I think he's doing that because he wants to identify as closely with the child in the child's uncleanness as possible. And he makes himself unclean. And here's the weirdest part of this story. The child comes back to life. It's like a contradiction of what should happen according to Numbers. According to Numbers, the prophet should be made unclean. He should be, if you like, as a dead man walking for seven days. The child comes back to life. It's not that the prophet is made unclean. The child is made clean. His uncleanness is removed from him. Think about Mark chapter 5. The latter half of Mark chapter 5 contains two famous stories. Remember, there's uh, Jairus, the synagogue ruler, comes to Jesus and he says, My my little girl is dying. Come Come and heal her. So Jesus starts to make his way towards Jairus' house. The girl, we could say, is about to enter into the great uncleanness of death. And there's a crowd pushing and jostling around him. And the woman who's had a flow of blood for 12 years, the length of the life of the little girl, have you ever wondered why that little, we, we're told that the girl had the flow of blood for 12, but was, was just 12 years old? I think it connects with the length of time this woman's had her flow of blood. It's a lifetime. When you're healthy, time flies by. When you're unclean, as this woman was, every day would be like a thousand years. She's suffered for like a lifetime. And she moves up and she reaches out and she touches Christ. He doesn't know she's touched him. He doesn't know she's unclean. And the text says he feels the power going out of it. And he says to his disciples, who touched me? And his disciples give the obvious answer. They say, what do you mean? Have you ever seen those videos of the sort of the Beatles being taken out of a, or a rock stadium? Or crowds are pressing around. Everybody's trying to reach out and touch Paul McCartney or John Lennon. You can imagine saying to one of them, uh, one of them turning around and saying, who touched me? It's say just about everybody. It's the same with Jesus. as He's making his way to Jairus' house. But he knows that not everybody touched him in the same way. Somebody touched him who was unclean. When the text says he felt the power go out of him, what the text is actually saying is he felt the cleanness flowing out of him and making another person clean. The woman with the flow of blood is, is made clean. When Jesus gets to Jairus' house, what does he do? The child has died by that point. Jesus takes his inner circle into the room and he closes the door and he takes the corpse by the hand in direct conflict, if you like, with the sort of the implicit advice of Numbers 19 because he's about to make himself unclean. What do we have? Cleanness flows from Christ into this little girl and her uncleanness is taken away. We talked about God demonstrating His sovereignty over enemy territory. Zarephath is enemy territory, but it is as nothing compared to the enemy territory of death. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 talks about death as the last enemy. And it's the last enemy that every single one of us here will have to face at some time. And when we face that enemy, the question will be, do we have one on our side who is powerful enough to take away that great uncleanness that will engulf us at that point? The lesson of Elijah is, yeah, God is bonus. God, he calls on God to raise the child as he touches the child. Notice when Christ, in Mark 5, raises raises the girl. He doesn't call on God. He says, little girl, I say to you, arise. Elijah performs a miracle. Christ performs a greater miracle. Christ does not have to call on anyone because he is God in the flesh. Why would he call on God when he is God himself? The question is, when we face the final enemy... Who will we have on our side to take away the last great uncleanness? Will it be your salary? Will it be the fast car that you drive? Will it be the great promotion you got at work some 30 years earlier that allowed you to retire early? Will it be your trophy wife? Will it be your family? Christian circles, you know, we often tend to think if you talk about the family, you're okay. But there are people who put an awful lot of trust in in their family, which is inappropriate. What will it be when you face the last great uncleanness? Will you have reached out and identified with Christ by faith? Will you be united by Christ, united to the one who himself was engulfed by the great uncleanness and yet rose again on the third day in triumph over it? And maybe today, if we don't want to go that far in the future, perish the thought that any of you are going to die later today. I did think, uh, going to, going, I went to Dallas two weeks ago and Omaha, Nebraska this week, and I was in New York on Monday. I pretty much tracked Ebola around the United States <laughs> thus far. I said on Friday night, sooner or later, I'm going to pop up on some center for disease control database as a, as a high risk individual. But any one of us could drop dead this afternoon. But let's say we're going to live for another 30, 40 years. Have you done something this week that makes you feel unclean? Have you done something that makes you feel you can't approach God because He's clean and holy and you are unclean? Most, maybe all of us feel that. Here's the good news. Reach out and touch Christ by faith. And you don't make Christ unclean. You become clean before God yourself. The Lord isn't just sovereign over Zarephath. He's not only sovereign over the enemy's geographical territory. He's sovereign over the enemy's territory, period. So this passage then, it's a great story, but what does it teach us? It teaches us that God is powerful in his word, and that's an encouragement to the church. Our strength. Depends not upon ourselves, but upon the God who speaks the word we bring to bear on our day and our generation. God is sovereign over all things. Metaphysically and geographically, there is nothing over which God is not sovereign. God is powerful in his mercy, even in times of great judgment. The Lord does not deny himself. He looks after the widow, the orphan, the sojourner. And the Lord is powerful in the midst of death. As powerful and as unclean as the final enemy is. Yet this text, Mark chapter 5, the life, the death, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, demonstrate that even in that uncleanness, the Lord has the final word. And the Lord is sovereign. Let us pray. Oh Lord God, we do thank you for your work in Christ on our behalf. Lord, we come before you today knowing that we are unclean and unworthy to come into your presence and asking, O oh Lord, that through your spirit we might look out to Christ, grasping by faith, be made clean and stand before you as those who are whole and pure. And as we contemplate the final day and that inevitable conflict with our final enemy, we pray, O oh God, that you would keep us close to Christ that when death engulfs us, even then, it will not be the last word. For we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.